Let's pray together. Father, as we turn our attention to your word and conversation you had with a young man, I pray that you would use it, not just so we can add knowledge to our Christian bookshelf, but Father, so that you would move us in, su in such a direction that it would give you grace and glory. And, and Father, we recognize you for who you are. Father, I pray that because of this conversation, we would have maybe a different view toward other people and see them like you see them rather than how the culture looks at them. So, Father, be with us now. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know a lot of you that are younger might not recognize this name, but how many of you know the name Lee Atwater? Anybody? Okay, there's a few. Um, he actually went to high school in Columbia, South Carolina, went to Newberry College, which I've been to many times before. Um, I was a chaplain for Queens University for a decade, and we'd go there and play basketball. And then he got his graduate degree at the University of South Carolina. So he's a you know, South Carolina boy. But if you know his name, you might know him as, especially in the politics of the 1980s, um, he was the advisor to Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. He was the chairman of the Republican National Committee. He was an amazing man in a lot of ways because he, everybody would say, Republican, Democrat would say, he single-handedly engineered the election of George Bush as the president in 1988. He's considered a, um, he was considered basically a ruthless, arrogant, mean-spirited, step-on-your-head type of politician. Um, he, became, he made um, uh, famous the name Willie Horton. Uh, he was the one who told George Bush, Bush, you can talk all you want about this kinder and gentler stuff, but it's not going to get you any votes. So he's remembered as the modern-day father of negative campaigning. And sadly, we are still, he's influenced our culture such that we're having to deal with it almost every year, even not just election years, all the time. Um, so I think it's clear to say he was the bad boy of American politics. His friends considered him a lovable scoundrel, his best friends. Um, by his own admission, he had two major goals in his life, and this might remind you of other people you know. He wanted to be the uh, successive, ma successful manager of a presidential campaign, which he did, and he also wanted to be the leader of a major political party, which he did both before he was 39. He was on top of the world. There was no, then out of nowhere, he developed a massive brain tumor. He was treated, instead of getting better, he got worse and worse and worse. Life magazine published an article in which they evaluated his life in light of his terminal illness, and these were his words. He said this, the 80s were about acquiring, acquiring wealth, power, prestige. I know, I acquired more wealth, power, and prestige than most. But you can imagine all you want and still, you can acquire all you want and still feel empty. What power I wouldn't, wouldn't I trade for a little more time with my family? What price wouldn't I pay for an evening with a friend? 
It took a deadly illness to put me eye to eye with that truth. But it is a truth that the con this country, caught up in its ruthless ambitions and moral decay, can learn on my dime. I don't think, I don't know who will lead us through the 90s, but they must be able to speak to this spiritual vacuum at the heart of American society, this tumor he called of the soul. I'm going to talk more about Lee Atwater in a little while, but um, he is an illustration of my generation, the baby boomers, who we were taught to get up early, work hard, climb to the top, step on a few people if you have to, um, but look out for number one. That was the baby boomers. Our text today, though, deals with a situation where Jesus has an encounter with a young man um, We've looked at a number of encounters with Jesus this summer as I preached, but um, his name's not in the Bible. He's called, though, the rich young ruler. Um, let's read it. If you got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 18, 18 through 27. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard this answer, he said, There is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. When Jesus saw this, he said, How hard is it for, a, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, then who in the world can be saved? He replied, what is impossible for people is possible for God. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. So here we have this young man, probably between 80 and 18 and, and 30 years old. That's my best guess. Um, but he obviously has made a lot of money in his young age, and he's risen to the top of whatever corporation or company he has. But it's obvious he feels empty. One day, the young man seeks out this carpenter from Galilee who's named Jesus, and he says, basically, with all this money I have, all that I could have, all I could want, I feel empty and unfulfilled. And he went to Jesus with this question, which is a great question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in my ministry over the years, I've had a lot of people ask me similar questions, like, for me, how do I come to really know God? And Jesus gives an answer I've never given. This story was very popular with the disciples because it's recorded not just here, but it's recorded the second time and a third time in Matthew, Luke, and Mark. So who is this young man? I think he was, from what we can tell, he was a man of good character. I think he, we would all, if we were, he was our son-in-laws, we'd be proud of him. 
because he would be um, hardworking, going to the best of his ability. We have to admire his, his um, courage in coming to Jesus, his humility in realizing that he didn't know something. And certainly we would admire his aggressiveness because he, see, he sought out Jesus. But there's more. I, I like the fact that he asked the right question for the right reason to the right person. <clears throat> Lord, tell me what you want me to do. If you can tell me, I'll do it. This young man sensed a lack in his life. He comes to Jesus not knowing what is that one thing that he lacks. But this young man was wrong on two accounts. One, he was wrong that he thought if he could just hear something, then he would do it and he would gain interest into heaven. And he was wrong that he had that ability. Some have come to Jesus with this crucial uh, question, and give, God gives him this answer. And it, it has confused pastors, theologians, regular people all over because he asked this very important question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? <laughs> and it appears that Jesus either doesn't understand the question, which is wrong, he does, or that he doesn't know the answer, but he does, or Jesus just doesn't want to give him a straight answer, which obviously he didn't. But we read here, it doesn't seem like the question and the answer go together. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, in verse 19, says, why do you call me good? And that was kind of like a throwaway, good teacher. It was like uh, Mr. or, you know, basically it was, yeah, you're a good teacher. Now, this is what I want to know from you, teacher. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And it puzzles you. It sort of reminds me, I don't know if you're fans of the Lord of the Rings and, and The Hobbit, but there's a, a scene in which Gandalf, the wizard, comes to Bilbo, the hobbit, and Bilbo is, is one morning, and let me just read it to you. It says, good morning, says Bilbo, and he meant it. The sun was shining, the grass was very green, but Gandalf looked at him from under his long, bushy eyebrows that stuck out further than the brim of his shady hat. What do you mean, he says? Do you wish me to a good morning, or do you mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not, or that you feel good this morning, or that it's a morning to be good on? All of them at once, says Bilbo, and a very fine good morning for a pipe of tobacco out of doors and into the bargain. And then Gandalf has a conversation trying to lure Gandalf to go on to an adventure, which, which hobbits are not prone to do. They like, they like their tea, they like their food, they like their first breakfast, they like their second breakfast, they like to be in their hobbit holes, they don't want to go anywhere. And, but Gandalf is trying to get Bilbo to go and visit a dragon. Finally, the conversation comes to an end, and, and, uh, or basically Bilbo wants to end the conversation. He says this, good morning, he said at last. We don't want any adventures here, thank you. You might try over the hill or across the water. By this he meant that the conversation was at an end. What a lot of things you use good morning for, said Gandalf. Now you mean that you wanted to get rid of me, and it won't be good until I move off. Well, Jesus is talking about, why do you call me good? Literally, the young man called him good teacher, but a way of respect, not as, I don't want to talk about good, I want to talk about eternal life. 
So then Jesus understands that, says basically all goodness comes from God. He's saying, why do you call me good? You really don't know what you're saying. If I am good in the ultimate sense, it's because I'm not merely a good person. It's because I am God in human flesh. And so when Jesus says, why do you call me good? He's asking the question, do you really know who you're talking to? Do you consider me just a teacher that's a little above average? Before the young man can answer that statement, theological point, Jesus plunges on. He says, you know the commandments? He meant the Ten Commandments. He says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And what's really going on here? Well, this fellow who's come to Jesus, he's like people of my generation. We just want a list. I often tell my wife, just write a list. What, what do you want me to do? I don't need all the conversation. Just give me a list, right? We want a list, and then we can knock it off. I've got a list on my refrigerator right now, and I've got those things checked I've done so that Lynn knows I've done them. Whether they're done well or not, I've got the list, and I've checked it off. Well, basically, this rich young ruler says, give me a list. Give me a to-do list. I'll make sure that I'll go to heaven if I do that list, and I'll check it off. I'll do this. I'll get to the bottom of the list, and then I'll be okay. And Jesus says, fine, if you want a list, I'll give you one. Here's the Ten Commandments. It's been around for a while. He says this, look at this list. Here's my list. Keep the Ten Commandments. If you keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, when you get to the end, you'll be okay. To which this rich young ruler, I don't think arrogantly, I think in his perspective, it was true. He says, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Well, that might be the most sincere statement he ever made. But it proves that he can be, you can be sincerely wrong. Because he hasn't kept, either he does not fully understand what the Ten Commandments are and what they teach, or he has a vaulted view of himself to the point that I've already checked those off. I've done it. Um, and basically, the scripture says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it says, if you say you have not sinned, you lie. Right? So, then Jesus drops this bombshell, and he says, okay, fellow, you think you're so good, you're not as good as you think you are, one thing you lack. Now, this statement got his attention, because if you have a go-getter like this rich young ruler, and you say, there's one thing you lack, he says, just one thing on the list. I can get that. I can do that. I've got money. I've got position. I've got, I'm hardworking. I'm honest. I'll keep the commandments. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. When it comes to going to heaven, it's not what you've got that counts. It's what you lack. What do you, do you understand that? We're talking about going to heaven. It's not what you've got. It's what you lack. And what is it you lack? Jesus says something to him that he would Never say to someone, I would never say to someone who wanted to trust Christ. He says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And if you have your Bibles and you tend to write in your Bible, I want you to underline those four verbs. Sell, give, come, follow. How would you like that if that was the membership requirements of this church? 
Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come and follow. Well, let's be honest. Those are somewhat scary words. It's the only time, by the way, in the New Testament that Jesus ever said that to anybody as a condition for eternal life. You might say, is that normative for everybody? I don't think so. Thus, we don't require it today to join the church. Aren't you glad? But the truth behind it is applicable to everybody in this room. Why did he say this to this fellow? Because that's where this fellow had the problem. This fellow who looked at good on the outside, on the inside he was controlled by his money. Jesus was saying to the, this fine-looking, upstanding, good, young citizen, if you want to be my follower, you're going to have to break the hold of money that it has. It's choking you. You are living for your money. That is your idol. That is your God. And guess what? You can't have two gods and go to heaven. You either trust me, who's truly good and is the Savior, or are you going to trust in your wealth? Money had become his God. He touched this boy, this, boy, this young man, at the point of his need, and he's saying, you have an idolatry to money, and you have to get rid of that before you become my disciple. That principle was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today. You cannot love money more than Jesus and be his disciple. Jesus cannot be your second God, no matter what it is you hold on to. And so this applies to so many here. What do you hold on to? What, what are you holding on to, maybe more than Jesus? That has become your idol. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. He's basically saying, I have too much to give up. I have too much to give away. Can't do it. Now notice here, Jesus didn't, you know, I, I've been to Tijuana, walked across the border, and um, I'm a pretty good haggler. You know, you go and say what you want, they give you the price, and it's like five times too much. And you go, oh, no, no, you talk them back to 50%, and then you go, no, I want it for 25%. They say, sorry, can't do it. And then you walk away. Now, what happens when you walk away? They chase after you and grab your elbow. They said, tell you what, if you buy this, this, and this, and do a bundle deal, right, like the pickers, do a bundle deal, and then you can have it. Jesus did not chase after him and say, let me lower the price. Let me make a deal with you to make, so you can become my followers. Let me accommodate your idol. Jesus did not say that at all. This is why he says, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who heard this said, who then can be saved? This is so hard. If you had anybody explain to you that the eye of a needle was a certain passageway into the city of Jerusalem and you had to get the, the camel in just right or it wouldn't work. Forget all that. It's not, I don't think that to be true. You know what an eye of a needle is? It's, it's a needle like you sew with. And you know what a camel is? It's a big ugly thing that spits, right? That you go across the desert with. And you try to get one inside the other, it's not going to work. And basically Jesus is saying it's impossible for a 
rich man, like this rich young ruler, to get into heaven that way. Well, who then can be saved? Why can't a rich man get into heaven? And by the way, I'm talking to rich people today. And this verse, this passage is basically saying you're rich and it's near impossible for you to get to heaven. You thought this was going to be good news. A poor, a rich person is someone who has two sets of clothes. That's the definition from the biblical perspective of a rich person. How many of you have a closet? Okay, then you're all rich, right? If you have more than two sets of clothes, you're rich. It's easy for a poor person to get saved because a poor person says, if Jesus doesn't come through for me, I'm sunk. If it's not Jesus, I have nothing else. And a rich person say, well, if Jesus doesn't come through for me, I've still got my money. I've still got my 401k. I've still got my house. I've still got this. I've still got that. I will be okay. Except we tend to think so limit. We, we limit. This rich young ruler at least was thinking about eternity. But he walked away from eternity because of what he had. It is, wealth can just grab us so much. I have more, and I'm confessing today, I have more anxiety over money than probably anything else in my life. I have to struggle with it over and over again. I, I have to confess, I say, okay, that's too much. We don't need, you know, I'll, my greatest fear is that if I were to die, that I would not leave enough for Lynn to live on. And her greatest fear is that, um, that I die first. <laughs> but I want to make sure to provide. Now, that's a good thing to provide, but I want to make sure I have more than enough than I could ever need. I don't want there to be any doubt. And so I want to pinch. I want to, and, and I have to work. You know, Lynn is the uber generous one, and I've learned just to listen to her and say, okay, give it away. Okay, we'll give it away. That'll be fine. Because I can identify with this rich young ruler. Who then can be saved? The answer is in verse 27. What is impossible with men is possible with God. The message being even rich people can be saved if they'll give up their trust in riches. It's not wrong to be a believer and to be rich. It's wrong to be a believer and trust more in your riches than you do Jesus. I am thankful for people who love Jesus and have a lot. For, to pay for the refurbishment, to ultimately pay for maybe a building in the future of this church, it's great when you have generous people that have a lot and they can give out of their surplus. It's wonderful. We want that. We want that, absolutely. And, and in the culture we live in this community, we are basically reaching rich people. But this is a message that needs to be heard, that Christianity is not based upon who you are with your riches. It's on who, what relationship you have with your God. Shorter Catechism says this, What is faith in Jesus Christ? 
Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace by which we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. Which means that alone means not because of what we have or who we are or what prestige we have. Bill Self was a pastor of a large church in uh, Atlanta and he tells a story that his best friend's son died in the F-14 airplane. His friend said to him, Bill, once you lose your son, you find out that there's no such thing as serious money. Life and death are serious. Money isn't. And that's true. Let me finish the story about Lee Atwater. Um, he was the lovable scoundrel, the meanest man in American politics. He was cut down by this brain tumor at the age of 40. He died on Good Friday, but these were his last words. He said, I have found Jesus Christ. It's that simple. He has made a difference, and I'm glad I found him while there was still time. The thing that once counted in my life, power, fame, glory, no longer have meaning. I don't hate anybody anymore. For the first time in my life, I don't hate anybody. I have nothing but good feelings toward people. There's just no point in fighting and feuding. His salvation was so life-changing, some of his friends didn't believe it. He basically contacted every person he felt like he had offended or cheated or maligned or slandered, and he personally apologized to them. He, he tried to get to everybody before he died. And people said they accepted his apology, but they didn't really believe it was Lee Atwater because he was so contrary to who he was. And many people, even after his death, some of his close friends said, I don't know what went, what went on with him. He must have just gone crazy. No, he trusted in Jesus. They said it wasn't right, but what it was, it was supernatural. It gave him a, a, a different perspective. I have two conclusions, and then I'm through. As long as you make money and the things that money provide, and you trust in them, you will be empty and unfulfilled. When you stop trusting in money and the things that money can buy and turn your life to Jesus, then and only then will your heart be satisfied and you'll have a different view towards your money. The one thing you lack, God offers to you right now. By the way, freely. Because he paid the price. Would you like a life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ? It's yours for the asking. But don't walk away like this rich young ruler did because of the idol that he had. Let's pray together. Father, you've already promised, as we read earlier in the scripture, that you provide bread for the hungry, rest for the weary. You clothe the flowers, and you'll clothe us. You feed the birds, and you'll feed us. When we're weary, you are there for us, and you're the bread of life. Forgive us for loving money so much that we don't have room for you. Grant that we, we might realize our deepest need so we can provide, you can provide that one thing we lack, and that's your grace. Father, help us as we interact with other people and we recognize in them the idol that this young man, this rich young ruler had. And Father, would be, we be willing to confront them like Jesus did 
and point them to the good teacher, the really good teacher. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.